That's Debatable is sponsored by MB&G. MB&G are specialists in the esoteric world of vehicle and furniture warranty insurance, delivering quite marvellous customer service, prompt claims payment, and a highly developed understanding of how to deliver these products in a way that is both compliant with the regulations and attractive to customers. And welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Well, ben, this morning I'm joining you, having spent the weekend walking in the um, Surrey Hills, and I managed to get lost. I grew up in the Surrey Hills. I grew up in the Leith Hill area, and I used to know it all like the back of my hand, but I managed to get lost with the dog yesterday. Uh, got home by nightfall, though, Ben, so I'm here with you, uh, safe and sound in the end. How long were you lost for, Tom? Um, I was lost probably for about, it wasn't that bad, about, about 35 minutes. Um, but they all look the same, these paths are around in the, right. in the woodlands. Uh, and they all have these subtle uh, signs and, and nuances to them. And then the, 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 the terrain goes up and down. And you think that's the same field you walked past 10 minutes ago. And it's a completely different field. And then I found myself thinking I was behind the garages that would get me back home. And I wasn't. I was behind the estate that was about a mile down. <laughs> it, was just, it all looks the same. I don't know, don't know what Warwickshire's like. This is, quite, this is quite nice for me, Tom, I have to say, because usually when we meet in London, as we do you know, a couple of times a month for, for various things, my sense of direction completely fails me because I grew up in the countryside and London is all much of a muchness to me, um, apart from the key landmarks. And so I get completely lost moving between the landmarks, uh, usually to Tom's amusement. But if you put me anywhere in a sort of 15-mile radius around the village in which I grew up, in the middle of nowhere, uh, I'd be able to find my way back home quite quickly. Uh, so it's quite nice, Tom. I'm glad we, we have that we have that asymmetry, don't we? You're the you're the metropolitan elite, unable to navigate the countryside, <laughs> and I'm the country bumpkin uh, shipped into London who can't find his way around the circle line. I was going to say I was the city mouse. You're the you're the country mouse. But yeah. I'll, I'll take <laughs> metropolitan elite if that's on the table. <laughs> Well, enough of this enough of this craziness we should launch into this week's free speech yes. news because that is the purpose of our of our talking today um and we are launching straight in with a a really significant and something i think will hit a nerve with many of our listeners we're going to talk about salman rushdie and the royal society of literature because it's been reported this week in multiple source news sources. It's been in the Telegraph, it's been in the Times, it's been in the Evening Standard and, and, and other, other newspapers. Uh, but what the issue here is that the Royal Society of Literature, the RSL, has been very slow, or had been very slow indeed, to respond to the stabbing of Salman Rushdie in New York in August 2022. Now, it was, it was a hideous, hideous incident. And the, the concerns have been raised, not by no one. They've been raised by, I think it's a number of fellows of the Royal Society of Literature, including three past presidents. And yes. the problem here is, is that it's not an... It, well, first of all, it's, it's a terrible case of not coming straight out and, and saying how dreadful, appalling it is that Salman Rushdie... Uh, was attacked the way he was. And the, the argument seems to be 
um, that the society has a remit to be a voice for literature, not to present itself as the voice of its 700 fellows. That was what uh, the uh, president of the Royal Society of Literature called Bernardine Evaristo said. Um, but the great man himself, Ben, came straight back out on Twitter uh, with uh, just such a fantastic response. So Rushdie responded to the president saying, I'm just wondering if the Royal Society of Literature is impartial about attempted murder, question mark, brackets, asking for a friend. Really just cutting down to size the idea that uh, an attempted murder doesn't deserve utter and unequivocal condemnation uh, and that in so doing, the Royal Society of Literature would not in any way be, uh, you know, coming on side or on that side or around a debate around whether or not we should be um, criticising the Quran, which, of course, it goes back to the satanic verses and the fatwa yeah. that, that came out on Salman Rushdie. So um, Salman Rushdie came came straight back. But, of course, this isn't the only instance. That's what I was going to say a little earlier. There was also the case of Kate Clanchy a couple of years ago. Her book came out, mm. was celebrated, but it had a couple of references in the book to um, racial stereotypes, got picked up by activists, and then before you know it, again, she was she was being cancelled in inverted commas. And again, um, the RSL, the, the Royal Society of Literature, didn't fail to take a stand in support of Kate Clanchy, who's a who's a fellow of that um, organisation. So there does seem here to be a theme uh, and quite a a worrying theme that is clearly worrying past presidents that the direction of travel is just. To, uh, unable to support on on very clear issues of intimidation, issues of in this case attempted murder, to support the fellows of the society. So that's what I thought we could start by talking about today. One does have a suspicion, unsubstantiated but strong, that the sort of person who would say that uh, we have no obligation to be uh, a voice for all of our seven hundred fellows and that organizations, membership organizations, should not be taking corporate views about political issues of the day, uh, that that line is not something they stick to very strongly or consistently, that it's something that is applied and disapplied by the needs of the moment, and that that is the sort of thing that somebody like that might say about Salman Rushdie, Sir Salman Rushdie, we should say. Um, but perhaps if, if talking about the corporate world, um, expressing social and uh, environmental values, uh, commitment to tackling climate change, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I suspect there might be a different instinctive response uh, would, would be my hunch. I, I agree with that, Ben. I, I went and I had a look at the website of the Royal Society, the, the Royal Society of Literature. Uh, what an honourable institution it is. It, it was founded in 1820. And former fellows include Ben, uh, and I'm sure you already know this, but Samuel Taylor Coleridge, J.R.R. Tolkien, W.B. Yeats, Rudyard Kipling, Thomas Hardy, George Bernard Shaw, and Sir Roger Scruton, to name just a few. So I thought, well, let's go to the website. Um, very easy to access. It's uh, rsliterature.org. And I would have thought that an, an institution like that would be um, sort of sounding out from the rooftops names like that, a pedigree like that. But you really have to dig quite deeply within the website to find 
any reference to that or to the history. It's all about the contemporary world, contemporary writers, contemporary authors, and there's whole sections on Black History Month, for example. And I, I, I thought it'd be interesting just to, to describe how the website describes itself, the Royal Society of Literature. I'm on it right now. Who we are. The Royal Society of Literature celebrates and supports writing of all kinds. We are a charity for writers and readers throughout their literary lives. We're led by writers and we believe that all literature matters. We work with schools and prisons because everyone should have access to books. We celebrate the achievements of authors. We provide writers at all stages of their careers with the tools and resources they need to write. And we give readers access to the best writers from around the world. I feel I haven't learned much there about what the Royal Society of Literature is at all. You've confirmed my suspicion to be the truth in that the quote from Evaristo that it cannot take sides in writers' controversies and issues but must remain impartial. Well, if that's the view, then that's the view. But if that's the case, why are there uh, web pages on... Was it Black History Month or Black Lives Matter? What did you say, Tom? So on there's a Celebrating Black History Month page, and as I go down that, it's got vital discussions, uh, yeah, on okay. demand, decolonize your bookshelf, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, okay. So it, it, it goes beyond sort of a celebration of Black History Month and goes into the kind of contemporary racial politics that has been coursing through institutions the last five years. Okay. So that, that seems to me completely incompatible. Um, you know, lot, lots of people, and I count myself among them, uh, and Tom, I'm sure I can speak for you as well in saying this, are really fed up with the idea of corporations or membership bodies or regulators or whatever having values uh, which go beyond good customer service or whatever and and wade into the sort of stuff that uh, B Corps are doing that, Tom, you've published mm. a report on, um, or the excessive um, commitment now required of employees to share an employer's uh, philosophical and social values. I think that's completely wrong. The power imbalance is such that that can only ever be an infringement on the employee's right to freedom of speech and to uh, freedom to their own private, philosophical, religious, political views. Um, so, you know, I, I, I get the argument that um, an organisation might say, well, look, we, we're here for this narrow narrowly defined purpose we don't want to have a social view or, or wade into this political space whatever i think that's quite reasonable but obviously that's that's not their view that's not their philosophy it's something they're saying defensively as a sort of comms line to get out of this mess and and in fact from the content of their website uh, they're exposed in in hypocrisy of that because they do wade into some controversies and ignore others um so that that's completely clear um and as as Sir Salmon pointed out, it's it's not asking the society to take a view on Brexit or net zero. It's asking it to take a view on whether or not authors should be protected from maniacs trying to murder them for something they've written. That's not a matter of controversy within society. That's not a matter of political debate. That's That's not something in which you have two reasonable parties of people disagreeing with each other. Uh, it, it's it's an attack on all of us, which is palpably obvious. And just to go back to Sir Salman Rushdie, I'd, I'd like him one day to be Lord Rushdie, um, one of my great heroes. And I, when I say the great man, I mean the great man. You know, he's really, he's up there. Um, well, let's go back to him. If we are looking at decolonization of the 
uh, of your bookshelf, I think, which is one of the videos uh, on the website. Well, Salman Rushdie was um, born in India. He was born in India under the Raj. He won the Booker Prize in 1981 with, Midn with Midnight's Children, which is a fantasy-like novel very much about the experience of the independence of India from the British, very much addressing issues of colonization, of empire, and of what it would have what it was like for um, the Indian people at that time. And you think, well, here's someone who really is worth talking about. Here's someone who really is worth banging a drum about. Someone who so clearly also broke through purely by the merit of his literature, of his writing in 1981, before any of the sort of racialized politics had hit British shores. He was being recognized. He had broken through. How did he break through? Because his literature spoke for itself. For itself. Midnight's Children, I think, won two bookers. It, it's just a book that speaks for itself, and it doesn't need all of this sort of activism uh, to go around it. So I, I go back to Sir Salman and say, what an opportunity to, to talk not only about the appalling attack on his life, but to talk about his literature and to talk about him as being someone who broke through and has broken through um, as a non-white writer. And it seems really odd to have that opening in the website that I read out earlier that really, to me, is more like what, a, what, a, what you'd, you'd get in a sort of a school textbook yeah. uh, about what we are. And, and, you know, we're here for everyone. Really focused on the here and now. Really focused on the contemporary. Really focused on... Uh, the issues du jour, when actually there's so much rich history that they could be tapping into. It reminded me of what Marcus Tullius Cicero said in 46 BC. Oh, go on, Tom. Then, what did he say? <laughs> he said, Nescere autem quid ante quam natus sic accident id est semper esse puerum, which I think speaks for itself. Um, For the but, benefit of those educated in the state sector under Tony Blair's government, Tom, perhaps you could translate. <laughs> it means to remain ignorant of what happened before you. Ides semper esse puerum. That is always to be puerum a boy or a child. So to remain ignorant of what happened before you were born yeah. is to be a child forever. And he goes on, and I won't do this in Latin, for what is the time of a man except it be interwoven with that memory of ancient things of a previous age? And I far prefer that to the, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Because mm. I think Cicero says something a lot deeper there about you, you, you don't, if you are ignorant of what's come before you, you remain a child. And actually that website page and the words and the phrases that were put together as i say they felt very infantile um and the fact that if you do learn the past you also learn the future you learn the present everything's interwoven well i think it's and this is an attitude that, that of course we see all over the place where it's this this great hesitation to have any connection with a non-diverse past lest that non-diversity or an interest in it contaminate you in some way um and it, it it's seen the past is is because of that therefore seen as an obstacle to a progressive hyper diverse future um and so i i i wonder i mean this this is really just me thinking out loud speculating um 
But I wonder, will, will we get to a point if this cultural um, acceleration continues, um, where merely expressing an interest in history becomes or begins to become something that is in itself dubious, a mark of yeah. uh, suspicion or or uh, eccentricity, um, or perhaps even something deeply malign. And I, I mean, I think I think probably not on the basis that I think the woke juggernaut um, has really been ground to a halt. Um, and we're now, I think I would describe the situation now as a stalemate in terms of the culture war, um, because the opposition to it is such that it is having immense difficulty proceeding any further. But the ground it's already taken leaves it in a position of residual strength that's wholly disproportionate to the number of people who actually share its its uh, creed um so i i think i think probably that more pessimistic prediction won't come to pass but if not for um organizations like the free speech union um sex matters fair cop etc many others many dedicated campaigners if not for the efforts of those people and members of the public resisting all of this and if it were just to continue on on the sort of 2020 trajectory forever uh, or you know, for another five or ten years i could well imagine a future in which merely studying history or being interested in it was seen as something suspicious i don't think that's a completely wild speculation well there is a little hope here there's another page on the royal society of literature's website which is called history in the making and that's where the society asked its fellows, and in fact, some of the younger um, uh, people in the living, just general young people in the UK, asked them about their favourite writers for the last 200 years. And in second position on that page, amongst 13 to 15-year-olds, favourite author, George Orwell. So that gave me a little bit of hope. I thought, and I don't know if that winner has ever been heard of since, because that's probably the wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> But that made me feel, you know, all is not lost. There's the website on the one hand has all of the tick boxes for decolonizing your bookshelf and the tick boxes for anti-racism and the tick boxes for all of what will happen in 2020 and post. But on the flip side, you've got some prizes, some awards, some talk around people who genuinely are our greatest authors of all time. And in fact, I think amongst the 16 to 18 year olds, Oscar Wilde is third prize. Helen Maria Williams is second prize. I don't know her. But first prize is Seamus Heaney. Uh, so again, some great names that the younger people are throwing out there in a context where the Royal Society of Literature is asking for their, for their input. And they're, they're coming up with the greatest names um, of our literary history. So, so there's reason for hope there, I think, amongst our youth. I, I think... I I could probably count on one hand the number of novels written after about 2005 that I've read. Yes. I mean, almost everything I read is is pre-21st century. I mean, it, with the exception of nonfiction. But um, I, I can't really think... I'm really I'm struggling to think of five examples of novels I've, I've read that have been written after that period. Maybe there are more, but uh, isn't that interesting? It's that old um, what will break through, and we've talked a bit about this before. You know, J.K. Rowling broke through, and everyone yeah. wanted to read her books. Um, people used to wait for the next um, 
issue of where did Charles Dickens publish his episodic versions of his books? I don't know whether it was Punch. I can't remember. Anyhow, people would wait for the next chapter yeah. of yeah. what Dickens was writing. Um, you know, and 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 it would sell out pretty quickly. Those people who break through, and then people who are not natural readers, just just read because of them. I, I, my, my, my spin on what you're saying, Ben, is, is I don't feel I've experienced that really something that catches a virus yeah. almost and, yes. and catches the mind of a nation and says, we all need to read this. This is great stuff. So I, that, that's the way I think of it. Not just, not just in terms of what I have and haven't read, because it's also true for me. I haven't read that. I've actually, my reading's gone down anyhow, probably, uh, than, than it was 10, 15 years ago. But I'd love to see something catch the the um, yeah. the spirit and the imagination of, of of our society. Well, speaking of the uh, spirit that animates our society, we're turning to uh, reports over the weekend about well, it's two set two separate, but I'd say closely related things. This is the army uh, or the armed forces and remembrance, uh, and particularly the uh, Christian elements Christian emphasis within uh, within remembrance but also within the military more generally um, and Tom I well I suppose I should say as well the other element of this is uh, is, is the way in which um, equality diversity and inclusion is pervading the armed forces so I think we'll we'll come on to that in a moment um, but I, I just on on this question of how appropriate is it for uh, Christianity to have this uh, prominent role within the armed forces still. I think with questions of remembrance, where we're remembering a now very distant society that was overwhelmingly Christian, um, that seems to me quite a reasonable proposition, albeit it's worth noting that things like the Cenotaph were purposefully designed to avoid overt Christian symbolism um, to represent um, the Duke forces, Dominion, UK empire um, and the uh, religious pluralism that those forces contained. So there's an element in which you can say, actually, well, remembrance has always been to a considerable degree, not explicitly Christian. Um, but then when we're talking about the role of religion within the modern armed forces and chaplaincy and, and all that kind of thing, um, I mean, I just think the demographics make it quite difficult to sustain the idea that Christianity will still have that role uh, within the military in a generation's time. It just seems to me, I mean, I don't see even where you would find the uh, recruits to become new chaplains. I, it seems to me that you've got exactly the same structural things in the army that you do uh, in civilian life, where you just don't have people wanting to become clergy. You don't, you, you've got dwindling congregations and so on. Just prior to getting lost in the woods yesterday, um, <laughs> yes. we were watching television and I noticed that Songs of Praise has been moved to lunchtime on a Sunday, which was new to me. I yeah. thought it had always been in the evening, but it's now shown earlier in the afternoon, even more of a graveyard slot, I think. But mm. it was it was belting out a couple of the old traditional hymns that we all grew up with. And 
I mean, it absolutely, especially being back in the Surrey Hills, it, 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 was a, it was a huge point of resonance for me and certainly took me back to certain moments of my own, my own growing up in, at school and important moments of school assemblies, chapels, end of term moments, where, collective moments as the school when we came together. And um, so, you know, this is, this is powerful stuff the connection between uh, the established church, the institutions of England, the crown, uh, it all matters. And it's all intrinsically bound up. You know, we talk about things like our constitution, I think, in the UK uh, or England. Or <laughs> I always get confused about which is most appropriate to talk about when. But we say, you know, it's, there's, it's almost a, a spiritual thing, our constitution. It, it's, a, it's something you recognize when you see it. It's not written down. It's not like the US constitution. And it has this strange relationship between the crown and parliament. And I think it's the same, the relationship between the armed forces, the crown, and the church are inextricably linked. And I think it's almost a deeper issue than the change in the demographics of the country, although that's clearly a part of it, and maybe it will need to evolve and adapt. But any of us who have a link back to our ancestors fighting for the country, for the flag, uh, that link with the... with the Church of England, specifically, even if we're Catholic, even if we're Jewish, and this is one that I thought was really interesting. You know, Grant Shapp said, you know, or mm. someone on behalf of him said, look, the Secretary of State is Jewish, and he's not offended, and he's furious. Because, you know, we, all of us who've had a stake in this country for, for an extended period of time, just it doesn't feel at all right to try to unbundle the mysterious connection between the church, the chaplains, and the army. And I know we've changed the society, but at the same time, I think if we really were sending people back into battle, I wouldn't be surprised if people started saying, I want the chaplain here again with me. I, I need something a little deeper than wokery to get, me, to get me through the challenges of being on the battlefield and potentially losing my life tomorrow. I, I feel like I need a, a deeper answer to life. And that is what is so important about this connection between the armed forces, the act of remembrance, and, um, and, and Christianity, specifically the Church of England. So to me, it seems obvious that you don't mess with it and you don't start coming out with missives to try to be inclusive, whereby you say, we really shouldn't talk about the church, we really shouldn't talk about Christianity when it comes to acts of remembrance. Or you can have your remembrance services, that's fine, but the acts of remembrance need to be entirely entirely non-Christian non or at least not, not so overtly Christian. I, I just think, no, it just really sits uncomfortably with me, Ben. Interesting one point you make there, the, um, <clears throat> during the Great Patriotic War, Second World War, um, even Stalin eased restrictions on um, Christian worship. Yeah, and uh, similarly, when I think I think it was when when Rome was besieged by um, Alaric the Goth. I think there were. Uh, I think it was almost conceded that um, pagan worship would be tolerated. Um, and I think it wasn't in the end, but I, I, it, I'm speaking from through the haze of memory. But I'm, I'm pretty sure there, there was a, a very close run debate about whether uh, pagan worship would be tolerated. So there is a sense in which, obviously, um, 
bad times can can bring back um, resurgence of some kind. Um, I, I think I think I agree with the um, elegant illogic of the British Constitution and not wanting to unpick it. Um, but I, I I think the only thing I'd say about uh, about that in caution is what I've said already that. Um, it is worth remembering that significant elements of the way in which remembrance has been done since the First World War have been basically secular or multi-faith or, or yeah. not overtly Christian. Um, so it's it's a little bit more complicated, I think, than than just um, saying, oh, it used to be really Christian and now it's not. I disagree with that. I, I, I disagree with that quite profoundly actually because i think it, you, you you've well, i don't think you've fallen into a trap necessarily ben but you've fallen into this idea that um people who are non-christian would find christian um outworkings in some way uh unappealing or would would find that irrelevant and i don't think they do i think people find christian forms of worship in this country uh, actually quite inclusive, even though they may come from a different tradition, even though they may have totally different beliefs, that, that actually the, um, the reality of us being an established, having an established church and being a Christian country built on Christian roots is a source of succor, not just for those with faith, but for those without, and for those with completely different faith. I agree with that. I mean, the, the case in point is the contrast between um, the state of social disintegration in France versus the United Kingdom. Um, and our mm. problems, I think, on that score are, are great. I don't want to underplay them. Um, but I think that having a Christian constitutional framework is much more intelligible to um, people even from non-Christian background than having a um, pretty aggressively secularist constitution in france so it's not it's not that i'm saying that it's it's something that puts non-christians off and therefore ought not to happen um I, i'm really just I, I suppose i'm questioning the the historicity of saying that um this has always been an overtly christian process in every dimension because it, it hasn't been um which is not to say that the, the church hasn't always played a huge part in um, in remembrance, it has. It's just that things like the cenotaph, most notably, um, were were designed in such a way as to be, dare I use the dread word, inclusive, but designed to be inclusive of, of other faiths and the religious pluralism of the British Empire um, and dominions as was. Um, so that's where we are. But I think that the, the point to pick up now is where we're going, uh, which brings us to part two of this topic, which is the um, proliferation of uh, equality, diversity and inclusion, uh, well, rubbish, throughout the military. And it's something we have a lot of experience with in our case. We've, we've helped numerous um, uh, serving personnel and reservists, um, most notably recently the case of uh, Colonel Calvin Wright, the army doctor, who was in the news last year um, because of his case. And there has been this expose, hasn't there, Tom, in the Telegraph by uh, Stephen Edgington. Uh, That's right. About, yeah, so it's it's partly on uh, the Christian elements of acts of remembrance. But then <clears throat> the substance of the article uh, in the second half is then about uh, gender, sexual orientation, and so on, and the way in which that is being 
or a particular ideology based on that is being pumped through. Well, the Ministry of Defence, according to this article, has 93 diversity networks. And Ben, I'm just I'm just disappointed they didn't make it to around 100. Uh, I, I think they, they could at least find another seven to get to 100 diversity <laughs> networks. And I was thinking, how do you get to a point where you get, um, I think it's, they've got seven for LGBT issues, 14 for race issues, and 10 for gender issues. Um, and I, I guess I slightly worry that it's only going to grow as we, for example, let's take the example of... Um, LGBT and gender identity ideology. There obviously mm. would be a group on one side of that debate, but then there is also seen, which is a group on the other side of the debate, a more gender critical group. And so as the, the sort of the culture wars play through, of course, the, the, these things, this was, you get more of them because you need something to counterbalance the ones that take a view that's up um, for being uh, disagreed with and which has raised a lot of controversy. So it's going to be very difficult to see how um, these numbers are going to come down. But it is worrying that a, a force that should be good at being lethal, you know, that's what the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force are about, um, is so worried about inclusion and diversity. And, of course, there was the report over the weekend as well that there will be a change in the... Um, the entry criteria to to, to improve um, to improve uh, diversity as well. Again, very worrying. We need full vetting of anyone going into the armed forces. They're going to have a gun, and they, they're going to fight for the crown, and they need to be vetted clearly. But this 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 seems to be almost the last part of our civil service and the last part of our uh, cultural life that you would expect this to happen. But maybe that's why it has been. I was just doing some research while you were talking, Tom, and I think I, I will do some actual research on this after we're finished because I wanted to try and find out how many chaplains there are in the mm. armed forces uh, versus how many EDI officers there are. And it would be, I think, quite interesting to compare those two figures. So I think I may be sending a Freedom of Information request later. Um, yeah. It looks like, according to a report in the Daily Mail, that there are 40 staff working full-time on improving equality, with more to be recruited soon, end quote, uh, across the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. Um, <clears throat> and I wonder, I mean, we must, we must soon get to a point... Uh, where those officers are outnumbering chaplains, which I, I think you can see there, the replacement of one religion with another. Yes, and it's it's a dozy religion. I mean, it's totally dozy. On one of the articles in the Telegraph, there's a picture about uh, about it's a Royal Navy picture. It's about sexual orientation and gender identity with four swim lanes. One of which is biological sex. The second is sexual orientation. The third is gender expression, and the fourth is gender identity. What's the difference between gender expression and gender identity? I do not know. Anyhow, underneath in big bold print, the poster says, "We all swim in each lane. No swim lane influences another." So your biological sex, your sexual orientation, gender expression, no swim lane influences another. Really? Your biological sex doesn't affect your gender expression? 
that I mean, th- 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 this is dozy, like you say, it's dozy religion. It's yeah. cultic. It's crazy. And there are posters up with Royal Navy on them, uh, yeah. saying saying this nonsense. It's the difference between tolerance, which is good, and promotion, which is contentious and I think bad. Um, the the army, the armed forces, should be, I, I think, very aggressive and firm in promoting tolerance for gay service personnel, for women, for service personnel from ethnic minority groups, and I I think that would would command. Well, there would be no controversy in society about that. Everyone would agree about that. Um, but there's a difference between promoting tolerance and insisting on tolerance um, versus promoting a particular ideology based on the sacralization of each of those identities. Um, and that seems to be where the uh, the armed forces have completely lost the plot, which seems to be the view of the defence secretary as well. And generals and, and, and former yeah. personnel, former very, very senior personnel have written, have put their names to this, to this letter ex- expressing concern, particularly about the active remembrance that we discussed a little earlier. But it's, yeah, it's not just promotion, though, is it? It's, it's this is it. You know, yeah. I look at these posters, it's, just, <clears throat> it's promoting a particular ideology, but it's also saying this is it, it almost like a, a, exactly like a religion, exactly like the, the Church of England's 39 Articles of Faith. The stuff I've seen from from the armed forces in the last few years has been more bonkers than what would have been going on in a university 15 years ago. Um, the army has been putting out training and the Navy have been putting out training and promotional materials and so on and, and uh, its personnel processes as well. All of these things have been carrying on in a, in a way that would have been regarded as fringe, loopy and extreme in a university a decade and a half ago. I'm not exaggerating. I, I mean that quite quite literally. Um, that that's the state that they've managed to get themselves into. So it's good that there seems to be some energy uh, on the part of the defence secretary going into unpicking this. But we have this constant problem where um, ministers rage against woke capture of civil service and uh, government departments and quangos and now the armed forces. Um, it's just where the action can then follow. Uh, in the ossified bureaucracy that seems to have control of, of British institutions these days. We, we do have to pinch ourselves sometimes. I, I occasionally pinch myself, and I'm actually doing that right now. And, and think, he is. You know, I can confirm oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Are we actually living in this world, this upside-down, inside? Now, I'm over 40, well over 40, and um, I think one of the reasons I've escaped it is because, frankly, my views were formed, my views were ossified then, uh, and I think that in a good way. That's not to say I would never change my views, but my, my framework of reference, the means by which I work out what is true and what is not true, they, are, they won't change, I don't think, or at least it would yeah. be a huge psychological um, rip for those to change for me now at this stage of life. I, I have ways of looking at situations and understanding situations. I filter them and I work out what I think. And that can change, but that that framework doesn't. Now you're um, you're 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 well under forty, and I just wonder how you slip through the net because you seem to have you must have good white blood cells, cultural white blood cells <laughs> that are spotting this woke mind mind virus, spotting it, pointing it out, 
um, because you've you've escaped. Is it is it by virtue of finding your release in in books? Is it your you you are a historian? You've always been um, a, you know, wanting to understand the past, and because you're doing that, you are and therefore able to interpret the present. But I've I've always thought you've slept slept through the net, slipped through the net somehow, Ben. <laughs> We'll come back to slip through the net. <laughs> I think having a strong interest in, uh, perhaps I might say, an overdeveloped interest in history is part of it. And that's one of the things, by the way, that fills me some hope. Because if you look at, and I, I think I probably made this point quite recently in another episode, but if you look at the, the audience figures or the viewership for um, the rest is history or history podcasts mm. or documentaries, whatever, you know, that overwhelmingly is driven by young men, men under 40, um, and then on the other side of the sex divide, obviously the, the reaction against trans really has been driven by women, um, not exclusively, but but in large part, I think I think we'd have to concede. Um, so th- that gives me some hope. But I think also, as much as I'd love to just sort of claim um, character points, Tom, for the praise which you're heaping upon me, I think also it's just luck <laughs> in that I... I, Don't I went trust to university. me too much. Sometimes I have a velvet glove. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would say I, I went to university in 2009. I grew up as a teenager without a smartphone. Facebook um, was launched when I was about 16 or, so, or certainly it came to Britain when I was about 16. So immediately the facts of my childhood and teenage years are more similar to the generation above than to the people just five or 10 years younger than me. That makes a big difference. I didn't have a smartphone probably until I was about 19. Um and I finished my undergrad by 2012, which is an, a historical epoch away in terms of um, social, cultural, politics, and so on. Um, so, you know, and also I went to Exeter, which back then was a pretty, you know, safely small C conservative kind of institution. Um, people weren't really interested in um, bringing politics into sort of student politics. All of that was very apolitical. Um, so I, I think. And, and I think I, I, I reflect on these things when I speak to younger people going through university now who are trying to cling on to the cultural tradition. Um, even, by the way, people who are not, um, you know, might be second or third or fourth generation immigrants, but feel a very strong affinity with the West's intellectual cultural tradition, broadly defined, um, and want to cling on to it. Um, and they really do have an uphill struggle um, because they're swimming against the stream in a way that I just didn't have to. Um, I was sort of the last generation to slip, last part of the generation to slip through. Um, yeah. So, you know, but but even there, there's there's something hopeful I'd say because it's it's quite it, you know it's encouraging to see really impressive young people who are just kind of gently in their own way pushing back against this stuff. Well, and I think as well, you can't underestimate how much has changed in the last ten years, which you just right. kind of escaped, didn't you? It's just been this right. acceleration, but it's been yes. a rocket ship acceleration. Um, and, you know, this sense of uh, how much has changed and how far we've come was really brought home to me this week because um, I love YouTube, Ben. I love the fact that it's now become a place you can go to and rediscover things from the past TV programs. When the BBC did things like I, Claudius, I think we talked about that in the past. Yeah. But it also took me back on this week, and this is just a sign of how strange I am, took me back to a wonderful 
uh, 11, 12 minute clip of Sir Ian McKellen talking about that great speech of Macbeth. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in the petty pace from day to day. Very famous, and it ends with the told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. nothing. And that little clip on YouTube had Sir Ian McKellen prior to the, his performance talking about what every part of that speech meant, going really deep into it in a way, in an intellectual way, in a, in a way that didn't treat the audience as fools, but treated them as an engaged interested, intelligent, well-educated, yes. equipped, equipped to understand what Shakespeare was saying and equipped to understand what this meant for Macbeth in that moment. And I'm saying that, I'm not even saying the Scottish play, I'm calling it Macbeth. And, <laughs> and I, when you look back at that, 1978, 1979, 1980, and compare with the dross, uh, the, just the level of discourse the absence of depth in the commentary, you think, there I see the loss. I see the loss over an extended period, over 10 years, over 20 years, over 30 years. As you're living through it, it's drip, 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 drip. But as you, you look at the leaps by looking at 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, yeah. you realize it's, it's, it's a time that's been lost and it's a, it's a huge cultural loss, I think, that, that we don't see that. Uh, on TV, we don't, we don't, we, in fact, that's mocked as, yeah. well, it wouldn't be engaging, but yeah. people haven't changed. It would be engaging. It would be amazing yeah. for our young, bright things to see that in real time in some new productions, some new TV <clears throat> done by the BBC or whatever it is. That would be amazing. And I assure you, it would capture people's imaginations. I completely agree. Um, certainly with respect to criticisms of uh, legacy media. Um, but at least there is somewhere else you can go yeah. now. Um, you know, probably that probably there was a period where, um, <clears throat> I don't know, in the 2000s or maybe the early 2010s, where legacy media was declining in terms of the quality of what it was doing, whether that's, you know, things like impartiality in the news or, uh, you know, the academic rigor of documentary making or whatever. Um, and you, you, you didn't quite have the online ecosystem to go to um, for, for something different, um, something higher quality, uh, whereas now you do. Um, so it's... Yeah, it's, it's but, but it is a trade-off. I mean, it, it has been a complete... I think, as you do, Tom, a pretty complete collapse in terms of the output from uh, from legacy media and so on. But here you all are listening to a podcast um, and listening to us witter away. So um, <laughs> I don't know if that's some compensation for listeners or not. Uh, if you're still with us, it must be. Uh, if you left 20 minutes ago, then you don't know I'm saying this anyway. We so miss you. We miss you. Come back. We miss you. It's gone yeah. for a cup of tea. <laughs> I mean, I think I think we've covered a, a number of areas. We did have more to talk about in today's episode, Ben. But I'm looking at the time, and I'm thinking know, we we are probably out of time for this week. But I I enjoy I enjoy when we become quite discursive, and I hope our listeners do. Where we start with a headline item, but then we try to make the connections of what's going on underneath, and we try to breathe a little bit of life. And also, I think critically, if you are pinching yourself when you get up and you read the newspaper and your blood pressure goes up and you think, am I really living in this strange reality? You're not mad. You really are not mad. Um, and there is, uh, there is something that's happened in our culture. There is something that we can see in our data. The very existence of the Free Speech Union shows it. Yes. Um, and there is reason for much hope because I think 
that many of us are waking up to 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 all of this and and are looking for ways to make a difference and we hope that uh, the free speech union is playing its part in that so yeah thank you for thank you for listening anything to add ben uh, this week no that's all from me thank you for listening goodbye goodbye <laughs>